you haven't done so, I encourage you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, to chapter 1. Lord willing, this evening, our intern, Chris Smith, is going to continue a series in the Doctrines of Grace. And this morning, we're continuing a series where we left off in this account of Jesus' earthly ministry given by Mark, who was a disciple of Paul and of Peter. This is the third in that series, and we left off at the point where Jesus had been baptized and he had been anointed with the Holy Spirit and then led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And now he is coming back with power to begin his formal ministry. And that brings us to verse 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's ask the Lord to bless the words of our Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your scriptures and we thank you for the present power of the Spirit sent forth by Jesus Christ among us even this morning, to work in us that good thing. We pray just as you take our daily food and you nourish us and give us strength, and often though we don't feel it, yet we see the effects of that work, we pray that you would please renew us day by day through this word of your gospel in order that your kingdom more and more might be revealed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church that I grew up in, it was very common for groups of people to go out on the street and to share the gospel. We called it sharing the gospel. And maybe you have had the opportunity to explain, to communicate the gospel with somebody somewhat recently. And if so, think back to that time. Or maybe you have had somebody share the gospel with you. You can think of what they said. Or maybe you can imagine that this afternoon or this week you'll have that opportunity and What would you say to somebody? Think of the sorts of things that we talk about when we express the good news. That's what gospel means. And then I present to you a question. How often has the word kingdom come into that conversation? How often have you used the word kingdom in explaining the gospel to somebody? Probably for many Christians, maybe even most Christians, when we speak to somebody about the good news of Jesus... We primarily focus on things like deliverance from our guilt, that through faith in what Jesus did upon the cross, he has suffered in our place, we are counted clean, that his life is counted as our life, we are now righteous. All of those are absolutely central aspects of the gospel. I'm not suggesting something else should replace them, but they represent something of a narrow band on the bigger message of what the gospel is. When Jesus heralds the gospel throughout these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that the word gospel is almost always joined to the word kingdom. That tells us that the content, if there is some central content to the gospel, it is the kingdom. In our passage, verse 14, it says that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
These two travel together. When you talk about the gospel, you're talking about the kingdom in some sense. Compare other passages. I'll simply state a few of them. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, Jesus went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Again, Luke chapter 4, verse 24, he said to them, this is Jesus, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, verse 1, he went about proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Why then would we omit this word, or at least this idea, from what is the good news? And it raises two very important questions. In what way, to what extent, is your idea of good news tied to the kingdom of God? Are these two intimately connected? And then, imagine that you're speaking with somebody about the kingdom of God. Would it come across as good news? Does your gospel have a kingdom? Does your kingdom have good news? Because what we see in this passage and others is that these two go together. This morning, the Holy Spirit is calling you to look upon the kingdom of God in such a way that it drives you to repentance and to belief and to the proclamation of the kingdom. Each in our own way, according to our gifting, we will only truly repent, believe, and bear witness to this kingdom insofar as you are gripped by the goodness of what it is Christ has come to bring. And we're going to see that it's more than simply forgiveness of sins, more than simply an extension of your life into the age to come. And so we'll consider this under three main headings. First, we're going to look at simply what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Then after that, we're going to look at how that kingdom is good news and how perhaps we can point people to the goodness of that news. And then finally, we'll conclude by reflecting a little bit on the response Jesus calls us to here. Starting again with this, what is the kingdom? And I'll state here that I am somewhat envious at this moment of our intern because he has the joy over five weeks of working at about 45 minutes at a time through the kingdom of God. And the men are gathering together to consider what that doctrine is. Here, I will be constricted to less than 10 minutes to look at what is undeniably one of the biggest of all the ideas in the Bible. Many theologians say this is the idea of the Bible more than any other, even more than covenant, because in this sense, covenant serves the ultimate purpose of kingdom. So it's a big question, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming? And I want to begin by striking out some things that it is not, and yet which it is often confused with, whether in the church or out in the world. When we talk about kingdom of God, this phrase occurs many, many, many times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the writings of the Apostles that we call epistles. It has a definite meaning. And it is not simply a set of moral ideals, which, if you lived according to them, the world would become like a kingdom of God on earth. That is essentially the message of 19th and 20th century theological liberalism, that the gospel that Jesus brought was basically a set of moral realities, things like love your neighbor as yourself, and he was ahead of his time, and if people would simply understand and embrace that way of living, 
then the kingdom of God would be among us on this earth. Even fairly recently, there was a, a big production movie called Kingdom of Heaven, which if you look carefully, I'm not recommending the movie one way or another, I just am aware, here's a movie, Kingdom of Heaven, and the whole underlying agenda is that if people set aside their religious dogmas and just sought to be good to each other, that would be the kingdom of God on earth. There are many problems with thinking of the kingdom of God in that way. Foremost, it tries to have a kingdom without a king. Jesus, in that view, can be dispensed with. As soon as you've gotten his message, you don't actually need him anymore. But the Christ of the Bible is a Christ who is the object of worship, is God, is the Savior, and is the object, or rather, is the one to whom we submit for all of our obedience. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says, Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. There, by name, he means the power of Jesus. So you can't have the kingdom without the king. He is the power. Jesus says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Not, but no man comes to me except by my morals. By me, the person of Jesus is inseparable from the kingdom of God. So it's not just a set of ideals. What then is the kingdom of God? It's not simply a synonym for the sovereignty of God over all things. When we say sovereignty, we're talking about God's all-extending power that reaches to everything in all of creation. Certainly, the Bible does teach that God is eternally sovereign. In that sense, his kingdom is without beginning or end. As it says in Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion is for all generations. But when Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom, he's not simply reminding the Jews that God is indeed sovereign. They knew that. Rather, when he talks about the kingdom, whatever he and the apostles were talking about, they're talking about something that began at a definite point in time and history. Notice in our text, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand or near. And what is the implication there is that previously it had not yet been fulfilled. There was still time waiting for the kingdom to come. And it was not at hand. It was far off. He's talking about the time of the Old Testament prophets who were looking forward to this kingdom. You could compare, for instance, Luke 16, 16, where it says, Jesus speaking, the law and the prophets were until John. The implication is that we're beginning a new era after the law and the prophets And Jesus says, since then, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. Or Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, whoever is least in the kingdom is greater than John. That is John the Baptist. To be clear, John is not excluded from the salvation of the kingdom. It's a historical bracket. John belongs to a different era. He belongs to the era of the failed kingdom of Israel. But now Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. What then is the kingdom of God? Start with the word, kingdom. When we think of kingdom, what first comes to mind? If I speak to you about a kingdom, well, in the first place, we don't have many of them today. What do you think of? For many people, it's that place where the king reigns. It's the realm. It's the region. And all of the things that are underneath that king, under his authority, the realm. The term that Jesus uses is more dynamic than that. 
It has a meaning that is more nuanced than that. It can have a bigger spread. And simultaneously, you have to beware the danger of taking one word that has multiple meanings and plowing all of those meanings into every occurrence. But here, this is a word that can have more shades of meaning than we often think of with the word kingdom in English. Beyond realm, it has to do with rule. What we would say, kingship or a regime, a way of ruling. So the word Jesus is proclaiming both a realm and a way of rule. A realm and a way of rule. Let's illustrate this in a way that is perhaps fairly familiar, sadly familiar in some ways. Turn with me and look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is identifying the fact that there is a being whom we call Satan, which means the accuser of the brethren. That's his identifying characteristic, is to try to drag others down into hell with him, since he knows that he is guilty. The accuser of the brethren, Satan. Satan here, or rather Jesus here, states that Satan has a kind of kingdom. He has a realm over which he exerts authority, and he has a way of ruling. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who, after they see Jesus cast out demons, say, well, he only does this by the power of Satan. And Jesus, it says in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, It is inconsistent with the kingdom of Satan that he should oppose himself, that he would let go of his dominion. 1 John tells us that the whole world stands under the dominion of the evil one. Now, that doesn't mean that God has, say, 60% of power and Satan has 40% of power. At the end of the day, the devil is God's junkyard dog. God is in control. He permits, according to his decree, whatsoever shall happen. And yet Satan is responsible And presently, the Bible says he does exert real influence, real dominion, real tyranny in the world. So he has a realm, which is all who are unconverted. He has a way of ruling them, which is to tyrannize them with sin, accusation, pain, sorrow. Remember in the book of Job, when Satan wishes to afflict Job, God grants permission. And then you find that Job has so many terrors in his life. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Satan wields his authority. But he has a realm and he has a rule. But then look, Jesus opposes something else to this in verse 28 when he's explaining how it is that he cast out a demon. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is making a radical claim. As the first one who enters into history and casts out demons, he is asserting the kingdom is here. And someone stronger than Satan is here. I have the ability to bind him and set a limit on what he can do. He was a strong man indeed, but I have come in and I am asserting dominance. And he says, Jesus here, then the kingdom of God is among you. If I cast out by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom is here. Well, he did, so it is. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is now. What then is the kingdom? 
There are many different definitions that together are very helpful. One definition, when you think about what is the kingdom, the kingdom is the eschatological, we'll come back to that, the kingdom is the eschatological realm and rule of the incarnate Son of God. Eschatology means last things, and often when people talk about eschatology, they're talking about the end times. They're thinking over there. But I want you to take a different idea with that. There is an eschatology that applies to now, because there are some things that exist now that will exist all the way through the end. Remember, the Bible says anyone who has been born again is a new creation. That soul that has been renewed in the Lord is not going to be annihilated at the end. It's going to exist for all time. Eschatology, in this sense, Christ is bringing in the kingdom that will endure forever. The kingdom is the rule and the realm of the incarnate God among us, where he is asserting his desire to redeem through his work everything he would do in his life, his death and his resurrection for us. So God was always eternal and therefore sovereign, but in time, God has taken on human flesh, and it's in and through that flesh, empowered by the Holy Spirit who came down on him at baptism, that he says, now I am going on the major offensive into all nations, taking for myself a people, and those people shall reign with me forever. It is a kingdom that shall not perish. Now I said that the kingdom is now, It's very commonly said in reform circles, and rightly so. It's also not yet. And that's because the kingdom comes by stages. If you look at the Bible, partly what makes this doctrine confusing is you read in one place about the kingdom, and it sounds like earth has actual governments that are arranged according to God's perfect purpose, and everyone there is a believer. And so you'd be tempted to say, well, the kingdom's not here yet. We're waiting for the kingdom. But then you read other places, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And we hear of the kingdom being present. And that's because it comes by stages. I'm going to very briefly summarize these stages for you. It's laid out as three stages in which it unfolds. The first stage came with Christ's incarnation, his coming among us, being born. And that lasted until his ascension, his exaltation. During that time, Jesus was essentially announcing his kingdom and giving a preview of what it shall be like in glory. We'll come back to this in later weeks, but when Jesus went out to heal, he wasn't simply doing that because he wanted people to be healthy. Very often, Jesus chooses to preach rather than to heal. The point of the healing, whether it be the blind or the lame or the deaf, is to give some sense of the powers of the age to come, that Christ comes to restore and to reverse all that is wrong in creation and to show his power to do so. The second stage is from the time of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to the time of Christ's second coming, which will be bodily, visible, with glory. It's this intervening time that we are in that we sometimes call the church age, the rightly speaking church simply means the gathered people, and there's one church throughout all time. But this time that we're in is the time that the parables largely focus on, a time of gathering the kingdom. And there are many who are gathered only outwardly. And the parables describe them like unclean fish brought into the net. And at Christ's second coming, there will be a separation. So that only those who have partaken of the spiritual realities of the kingdom through faith will persist into the age to come. 
And then there will be the final stage of the kingdom, which comes after final judgment, when everything is submitted to the authority of Christ in heaven and on earth. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, his anointed one, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is very important to understand when it says that the kingdom of our Lord exists, and yet we do not yet reign as we will, living in this tension of this time that we're in, where the church cannot be identified and the kingdom cannot be identified with any one nationality, any one government, any one regime. It's international in character and ultimately of a spiritual quality. And so the kingdom is unfolding. Revelation 5 verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In a nutshell, the kingdom is the unfolding dominion of Christ over a redeemed people and then ultimately over all things visibly. Presently, God's kingdom is largely hidden. What is the good news of that? By the way, and I say it especially to the men, if you'd like to think more about that, come to the men's study, because it's incredibly difficult, I'm finding, to fit the doctrine of the kingdom into a a small package. It has huge ramifications. But if we don't take anything else away, we need to take away how it is good news. What is the good news of the kingdom? On the surface, many things about this message are bad news to many people. It was certainly bad news, remember, to the people who crucified Jesus, to Pharisees, Sadducees, to Romans. Why? Because they wanted to have a different kingdom than the one that he was bringing. And if you want autonomy, if you want to do your own thing, if you don't want to have Christ be Lord of Lords, then the news of the kingdom is death unto death to you. It is not good news if you want autonomy more than anything else. That is the deepest sinful impulse in you to be your own king. What you will get is a tyrant, and you can't even be king over yourself. You will end up being enslaved to the devil. Sin will dominate you. Let's see one person who wants to be autonomous live a truly selfless life. You can't. Sin will win. It is bad news to those who want autonomy. It is bad news to those who fear God's wrath as enemies. But notice in verse 14, look with me there. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Whatever Jesus was saying came across to many as good news and certainly Jesus meant it as good news. And I ask you, is the announcement that Christ shall reign over all things good news to you? And if you understood it rightly, you would see that it's the best news there possibly could be. As our second division, I want to lay before you simply three ways that we draw attention to the goodness of the good news. The first is by declaring the supremacy of Christ's kingdom over everything else. Think of the many things wrong with the kingdoms of this life. If you had a dollar... For every time someone complained about something wrong with earthly government, you would be in the highest tax bracket and you complain 
about the government taking your money away. There is no end. If you listed now all the issues with this world, and then imagine for a moment that Christians worked hard to try to fix those issues, whether it be of ecology, whether it be of justice, whether it be of poverty, whether it be of health issues, and imagine Christians check them off and make 99% improvements across the board, you would still be faced with the prospect in a few short years, you too will die. And even if by medical intervention, you could stretch your life out for 500, 1,000, 10,000 years, your heart of sin will live with you. And unless the pervading power of the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you will not grow better with time. You will grow bitter at the tedium and the pointlessness of a life that is not lived according to something eternal and infinite in meaning. Earthly efforts for earthly reformation do not bring about the kingdom that Christ has. It's better because it's everlasting and rooted in resurrection. When we are raised with Jesus Christ, we begin to enter into something that will transcend all expressions, all experiences of earthly majesty, joy, happiness. Romans 14 sums up the kingdom. The kingdom of God is everlasting righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Everlasting righteousness. Hearts, all the hearts of everyone who is a citizen in that kingdom will have no lack of love. Think of it that way when you think of righteousness, not some sterile ruler, but a beating heart of love. Righteousness forever. Everyone you meet. And all anger put away. All conflict done. Joy and peace. And that peace you wouldn't have if you didn't have the assurance that you will never fall from that status. If you gain this kingdom, you gain everything. If you don't have this kingdom, you have nothing. It will vanish in a heartbeat. The superiority of the kingdom is that it's not just forgiveness, but an entrance into a life unimaginably more rich. When the apostles see Christ in his resurrected glory, they fall down. If we could see the kingdom, we would shriek with joy, if not terror, and need the peace described. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Give it time. What earthly kingdom will not shake? Maybe a kingdom lasts a thousand years as Rome. It will shake. This country that we're in here, it will shake. But the kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken. Second, we have to point people to the openness of this kingdom. There is a narrowness, which is true, and we sometimes focus on that. Both have to be presented. It's a narrow path that true people of God walk upon, and Christ himself is narrow in that there's no other way. But for those who desire the blessings of the kingdom, the gates are wide open. They are completely open, no matter what your past or present sin. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Sinners, not the righteous, sinners. And so you have to own that you're a sinner. But if you are, you qualify. Sin will not shut anyone out. Status has no bearing on this. But think how many kingdoms have been defined by status. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, God has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world 
to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. You don't have to pay into the system. You don't buy the kingdom. We serve the kingdom from gratitude, but it comes free to all who desire it. There's no differentiation between ethnicity or whether male or female. Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus sees the faith of the centurion and he says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's another aspect of the goodness of this news. There is no comparison, no comparison at all between the major religions of this world and the minor ones to the effect which Christianity has had in uniting a people in every nation on earth. There is literally no comparison. And it has everything to do with the message of the gospel that Christ came for all who desire the kingdom to make of them one people And then third, we preach the kingdom as good news by declaring that it comes entirely by grace. In a moment, we're going to see that there is a call to action, but everything God calls the citizens of the kingdom to, he gives them by grace. Hear carefully what Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 32. Seek his kingdom. All right, what do I need? I'm going to seek the kingdom and be, you know, in order to bring this kingdom in, I'm going to go get all the tools that I need. I'm going to get a bunch of wealth and I'm going to get a bunch of weapons and I'm going to get a bunch of food and I'm going to, I'm going to bring in the kingdom. If you were an oppressed people and you wanted to bring in an earthly kingdom that was not in power, you might do all of those things. Seek his kingdom and everything you need will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. There is a sense in which Christians usher in the unfolding kingdom. We participate in the work of the king and his mission. We speak the word and we see people brought to faith. We live such lives as manifest the character of the age to come. But at the end of the day, you do yourself a disservice and everyone else, if you fail to remember, it is the father who is pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is not in suspense. The kingdom will be victorious. You get to be a part of it. The kingdom will win. The Father is pleased to give it to you, my little flock. And you have only to follow him. How does he do it? He does it through the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, remember Jesus had said in our passage, the time is fulfilled. Compare Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he was declaring his commission as king. He was going forth from that point forward to bring all of his people to himself. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, understand he cannot fail because he has the Holy Spirit without measure, the same Spirit by whom the stars were spread, the same Spirit through whom Christ performed miracles, turning water into wine. If you have received Jesus Christ, then that same Spirit works in you. Acts 2 verse 38, Peter said to them, repent 
And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we declare the goodness of the good news, we have to beware ever presenting it as some kind of offer which, if you do this, this is the one thing you do that casts the deciding vote, and then God saves. God calls people to action, but you point them from the beginning to the power of the Spirit. You tell them, God calls you, and yeah, he's going to call you to a Christian life, but he'll give you the Spirit so that you can live that life. We never want to set someone up to think that it's, you know, I earn it by my Christian life. In this way, it becomes good news. Third and finally, by way of conclusion, I want to reflect with you for a moment here. What is the response that the kingdom merits? Do you reflect this? Is this a part of the gospel that you preach? Look at me at verse 15. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're going to look at three responses here. Two of them are explicit. One of them, I believe, is implied. First, repent. It is more important that we've done it than that we can explain it. But how beneficial would it be to be able to explain it to someone? What is repentance since it's literally part of how people enter into the kingdom and the assurance of salvation? Put it in contrast to what Jesus says in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will perish. So you'd better get repentance right. Unless you repent, you will perish. What is repentance? I want to be very clear, especially for the young people here. Repentance is not checking off one particular wrong thing that you're not going to do anymore. I repented of lying. There is such a kind of repentance. There's secondary repentance. There's the repentance of a lifetime turning away from particular sins. But Jesus is getting at something much, much bigger. What is sometimes called evangelical repentance, or the repentance of the gospel, of the good news. The word used here has to do with the inward person, the heart and the mind. Merely changing your outward behavior if you don't change the heart is not repentance. And you can't change yourself And yet you must change, which means look back at grace again. Repentance is a changing of the heart of mind where it turns and becomes reoriented in the other direction. It's a turning away from the loyalty you had to this world, to unbelief, to sin, and a turning to God in Christ. That's why it's paired with the second command, believe in the gospel. If you just turn away from bad actions to right actions, that's not turning away from legalism. You repent to legalism, trying to establish your righteousness by your goodness. True repentance is turning away from all of that and looking to the Lord of the gospel and saying, receive me by grace, give me your kingdom. Give me everything on the basis of grace alone, and I'm going to trust you, I'm going to take you up on that promise. God holds out the promise and faith receives it freely. But it will result in a change of the life. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There will be a change in outward life because you can't claim that Christ is your king if there's no evidence of submitting to him. 
Yes, we all fail. There is a sense in which we have to acknowledge no Christian ever ceases to be a sinner. But there is such a thing as being the saints of God. There should be a palpable difference between us and the world. That every single sin, there's no category that we have not turned from and are turning from. Repent and believe in the gospel. Revelation 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he who accuses them day and night before God. If you would be in this kingdom, believe Christ has thrown down the enemy. There is no condemnation. And it's out of that knowledge that you then stand up and you fight, not as the one who brings in the kingdom fundamentally, but as one who participates in the mop-up duty, the joy of seeing God's elect brought in. And then last, we repent, we believe. I told you that the third is implied. The third response is implied. It's to bear witness to the kingdom. That's what we see Jesus doing. Acknowledge, of course, we do this in different ways. I don't expect any one of us to go out like Jesus and have a ministry where thousands are gathering to us in the wilderness. Every one of us, though, has gifts from the Holy Spirit, and all of us participate in the Great Commission. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, The gospel of the kingdom will go to all nations. And in a way that is somewhat unique to our time, these last centuries that we have been living in in this country, all nations are present. All kinds of people are here. And the Lord's desire is that his people would include the rich, the poor, the high, the low, male, female, every conceivable kind of person. And he's appointed you to bear witness to that news. And that means there's nobody that you meet that you should say, because of their background, because of their socioeconomic position, whether rich or poor, because of what they've been exposed to, I just, I'm not going to bother because they don't seem likely. We cast the net wide. When Jesus says, be fishers of men, he does not mean like fly fishers with that one kind of bait for the one kind of person who becomes Christians. There's that temptation wherever you are to think that the people God is calling will look like the majority of the Christians that you know. No. Christ has a people. He has a kingdom in all the world, and he calls us to bear witness to it and not to leave Christ out of it, but to make him the center. Let's ask him to do that. Let's ask him to help us in that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the high privilege of having been made a part of what Christ is doing. We thank you that after you have satisfied yourself in drawing a people throughout all the ages to faith in him, that you will send forth your son again in glory. We thank you that he shall reign visibly on earth. We thank you that for a time you've hidden his power in order that we might live by faith. We thank you that you will not neglect but will reward according to your grace our faithfulness to our king and lord we ask that you help us to lay hold of the kingdom more and more to desire it in every aspect of our lives for the way we live to accurately more and more represent 
Christ's authority over us, that the world would look upon the lives of your people and say, here is the kingdom. We pray for your blessing upon the institutional church as well as the organic church, that you would use the word and the sacraments in order to establish your kingdom firm in the world as we hear the gospel proclaimed. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us bear witness by word and deed to the realities of the things that we believe. We are weak, but you are strong. Christ was anointed with the Spirit, and we are baptized in him. We thank you that you will, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.